Hello and welcome to Tech Point Zero, your popular technology magazine show with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode one, released in April 2019. My name is Ben and as ever I'm joined by Chris. This episode we'll be discussing password managers, instant messaging and discussing virtual learning environments with Mike Collins from the Open University. Let's get to it. So I'd like to have a quick chat about password managers because I currently use a password manager called 1Password and I'm very pro password managers. A password manager is basically an application that securely stores all of your passwords for all of your accounts. Optionally, it will tie into your browser, so it will automatically input passwords and normally usernames and potentially other information for you. Might also optionally link up to a web service so you can easily sync your passwords between other devices like your phone and your desktop and maybe a work computer. As I said, I use one password, but I'm I'm kind of looking to change. I want something a bit more cross-platform and possibly where I can host the online bit myself. Do you, Chris, use a password manager and do you have any thoughts? So I use LastPass. I, re- I really like it. Like as, as a product, I really like it. There's, there's a few awkward bits, but a lot of that, I, I'm not entirely sure is their fault. Like mm. on Android, it's always awkward entering the password. And every time they say, oh, we fixed it, we fixed it. Like, <laughs> on either side, Android side or LastPass's side, it's, it's still awkward. As a slight tangent, being an iPhone user, mm. I don't use Android and haven't used Android for anything more than poking around. On iPhone, there's a framework that enables apps to tie into password managers, and it, that's facilitated by iOS. If there's a password field in an application, for instance, Spotify, I can click in the, say, username field. The application knows it's a password, username password field, and when the keyboard pops up, I get a like an autocomplete option to say would you like to use your password manager is there anything sort of similar on on android for that that's interesting because i use LastPass on an ipad pro as well and i haven't come across that i need i need to look into that there is something similar on android i'm running android 9 i think it is the latest version on the uh, oneplus 6 Mm -hmm. it doesn't doesn't seem to be 100 percent reliable i don't know if that's because there needs to be some app support like on the on the actual receiving app or anything else like there's a bunch of things that could be causing that Mm. and i quite often end up going into the notifications finding the persistent notification clicking on it finding the site copying and pasting the password it it is awkward. Like it's awkward enough that sure I'll do it, but I can't imagine regular users bothering with it. So it's very much one of those problems whereby uh, you understand why a password manager is good and you 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 want to use it. But to be honest, if it were a non-technical user that perhaps didn't understand not the convenience but the the, the security aspects behind it, they probably just would re- remain using I don't know password one two three. Yeah. So I should point out, I've I've recommended to non-technical users and my friends and family to use one, mm-hmm. and some of them do and get by fine. They they probably complain about the same problems <laughs> I do, but they understand the, the need of it. Mm. the The bit that worries me is the people who aren't being pushed by others to to maybe do it. Yeah, and I think probably just an important thing to point out for anyone that doesn't use one and doesn't know these managers don't just look after your passwords and store them securely. Quite often, they will generate passwords for you. So I think in my one password vault, I have very, very few passwords that are less than 64 characters long. I'm not quite I'm not quite that level, but I'm at a level where people, when they see my password, <laughs> they normally gasp. I just, I, I very, very rarely enter a p- password manually. I might as well have it as long as possible. And, and that's, I think, as long as um, 1Password will do it. Now, some sites... Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but some sites do require me to have a, an eight character password and that's it, or a 16 or, or something like that. And so I do have... The other problem with that is uh, games consoles. If you if you use a games console, entering a password there, 64 character password is uh, painful, especially because you're likely to get it wrong. Yes. Yeah, no, I so I have been there. There's some exceptions. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I, I do get that. So 
that's probably an interesting question then for those sort of situations what password length do you like i i use a passphrase in those sections so okay the, the password is pretty long still mm. but it's much easier to type yes absolutely hopefully that's a good compromise <laughs> There's a <laughs> there's a, a bunch of times, so I, I, I also use GeForce Now, I think it's called, which is NVIDIA's game streaming platform. Mm-hmm. Mainly to play games at work <laughs> in the lunch hour. Oh, right. Okay. I'm glad you, I'm glad you qualified with it in the lunch hour. Yeah. In the, I'm not, I'm, I'm working <laughs> the rest of the time. How that works is it's sort of running a VM in the, in the cloud mm. on, on a computer in NVIDIA's data center. And it streams the game to you, but you still have to log in on their computer. Yeah. So the security risk of that concerns me, but typing in a random 64 character password is painful like to a point where i wouldn't use the server absolutely so i've switched to something i can that is still long but i can type pretty quickly and and that seems to work i'm a big fan of self-hosting services so i have a nextcloud instance that i i maintain and recently i've i've made some changes to my desktop arrangements and i can't get i have to input my nextcloud password manually if i want to use it I'm quite well versed at typing passwords in off the bat. I, I very rarely get them wrong. But I must admit, yeah. sitting there and manually typing in my 64-character well, uh, Nextcloud password is rather tiring. So what are you thinking of switching to? So I really like... I'm basically looking around, and I've looked around probably for the last year or so, and I've come up with three possibilities. The first possibility is to use KeePass. KeePass seems to be recommended by everyone. I've used it at work. I've used it at multiple workplaces. And it's a really neat little application that does password management. You can get plugins for your browser that will automatically copy and paste password and usernames into it. It's a little light on features when I contrast it to or compare it to 1Password. 1Password has got Have I Be Pwned uh, integration and various other sort of niceties. It'll tell you how old passwords are, um, flag weak passwords to you, that kind of thing. 1Password basically just keeps passwords safe. It also doesn't do syncing. So if you want to take it somewhere else with you, you've got to manually pick up the little database uh, that it it generates and either bung it on your next cloud or your Google Drive or a thumb drive or whatever and take it with you. That removes some of the advantage of using that, especially if you're using Google Cloud or Mm. OneDrive or something. You're trying to avoid it being stored remotely, I assume. So I... Personally, I'm, personally, I'm not. I'm, I'm, um, okay. because the other thing is that I use password managers on my phone, so I need yep. it stored somewhat remotely so that I can sync it to my to my phone. KeePass is definitely an option, but doesn't have the the key aspect that is is missing for me is the syncing feature. The next possibility, which um, for some other for some personal preferences, which I'll get into, uh, may not work, is uh, Bitwarden. So Bitwarden is a open source password manager that has a commercial arm to it. You can self-host the server end of it. And there are iOS and Android and desktop apps there. It's got browser integration. It seems to have everything that I want. However, the server is only delivered in a Docker container, which shouldn't be a problem. But I don't want to have to run a lone Linux machine just to run a Docker container. I already have a FreeBSD VPS. Run a Linux VM with a Docker container instead of a VM? (laughs) It just because you can't like have enough nesting these days. Well, of course, I could have a, I could have a, 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 a yes, I could have have a jail running Beehive with Linux in running Docker. Yeah. Sure, so sure, brilliant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have actually done that on Freenas. It's not as silly as it sounds because the the jails, so yeah, jails or um, Docker have such a a sort of small overhead. Oh yes, that it's it's really just as slow as a VM. Yeah, and it to me, so yes, that's a that's an option, but it feels like far too much complexity. Secondly, yeah, the network is a pain. Yeah. Secondly, I'm quite embarrassed to say this, being a sort of sysadmin person. I've got basically zero experience with Docker. I don't want my password manager to be my first experience with Docker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, I can come and say that. I've had a little bit of experience with Docker, but mainly in development, yeah. not in not in hosting. Um, and it's always difficult being like, oh, we're going to use this for hosting. Perhaps a way forward with Bitwarden is to reach out to the Bitwarden community, see how um, receptive they might be to uh, de-dockerizing or at least providing some some instructions to de-dockerize. I don't know how much how ingrained the the application is. One one option might be to reach out and see how receptive the community is to providing a non-docker option, because then I might be able to port uh, the server application over to to FreeBSD. Yeah, you, you never want to do it if if, if it's not going to go back up, upstream. Like you want that to be maintained by someone. Absolutely. I mean. Uh, it wouldn't be quite so bad if there was a Docker file and I could just follow some instructions. Then I should just be able to follow these instructions every time, and that's fine. Yeah. But this doesn't seem to be built in in, in quite that way. So that is a possibility, and and that could mean that I I, I run Bitwarden. The third and more adventurous option for a password manager to, to to sort of fit my bill is to roll my own, which sounds no sounds awful. No, don't do your own encryption. It's not worth it, Ben. But I'm thinking that don't do it. I'm thinking that it could be really nice because this is all. So Bitwarden is written in C sharp, and I've got no no qualms about C sharp at all. It relies on um, the Microsoft's open source .NET framework, which I'm a little bit, you know, I, I, do I really want to be running that on a server? I don't know. There probably isn't anything. I don't really have much of an opinion about it. It <laughs> just it <laughs> like it's gonna. I I don't, I don't not particularly keen on .NET, but. It it's it's just going to be. I mean, it's a bit heavyweight as well, I suppose, but not as bad as Java. Yeah. So, but it's it's still going to be perfectly secure for the job. I'm kind of thinking that if I could get the key thing about rolling my own wouldn't be it's me doing it on my own. Because firstly, because I I can't do user interfaces, so I'd need help with with applications. I have zero. I I I'm awful at doing um, mobile application development, so definitely would need help there. But I'm thinking that a nice server-side application written in something like Rust, because I'd quite like to learn Rust, uh, written in something like Rust, or perhaps Go, would be cross-platform. It, you know, uh, That should be quite a nice, lightweight server, mm. and you wouldn't need an awful lot. I suppose if it's just for you personally, then you can get something that's secure basically just through the fact that no one else uses it. Of course, it. yes. It's, it's sort of secure enough. Yes. But uh, it's probably not secure from a, a concerted attack like someone trying to actually get into it so I, i'd advise against that of course i'd, I'd go with um I, I think i might actually go a bit warden from a look at this um i might just take the plunge with docker sure yeah i've it, it depends so the the two really good experiences i've had had for docker was deploying a forum with discourse mm-hmm. that was amazing their docker setup you put it on a server and you you install it it gets you the SSH key. Sorry, so um, gets you the SSL mm. certificate yeah. from where is it? What's the free provider? Let's Encrypt. Yeah, so it gets you a SSL certificate from Let's Encrypt. Sets all that up for you automatically. Creates the database. Does the whole thing. Mm. And then I did the update process, and that again is 
one or two commands. Right. It's so straightforward. I think as well. So sorry, just to just put it in. This is this is yeah. perhaps slightly more of a um, a Docker conversation as opposed to a one password conversation. But um, I think that what you've said there, a lot of that scares me. Um, having transitioned to FreeBSD a few years ago, you have to do an awful lot of things yourself. And now I get a little bit twitchy when you install something and it kind of does everything for you. Yeah. So the thing that I would check first, like like my my get out clause i suppose with anything i have previously installed via docker is is that at the end of the day i can always get the database yep dump it out somewhere and pop it back into a new instance of everything yes that's true like resetting things isn't too difficult in those scenarios especially if i've got regular database backups which you should have of course and that kind of gives you a a bit of a safety net from those scenarios and i don't know what bitwarden safety net's like if you can find a way that like it like if it's not creating keys that must be there but but as well equally so you can back those keys up so if you back up a key mm. that's used to encrypt the the vault you should be able to just take a backup of that data mm. and restore it in the future i'll test it first so you just reminded me of another thing that may stop me from um, from deploying bitlocker anytime soon is that it also requires a microsoft fql server uh, that's it that's its server yeah backend. that's a problem so sure you know it runs on runs on Linux now, so you can still go for, for an all Linux solution. But um... yeah, this is something that stopped me uh, doing .NET development was that the ecosystem is so tied to proprietary and commercial extensions. Yes, that when when you like you go to work and you learn all this stuff, and and it was enjoyable. Like I liked working in .NET as a language. It's it's a really nice language to work in. But then. You come home and you try and build something for yourself, something small, yes. but, you know, a toy project, whatever you're doing, and you cannot take any of that knowledge with you because, oh, you need a seat license for that particular part of the framework that you use, or you can only install this on a VM with one core because Microsoft have licensed it out to enterprises for bigger customers. Yeah. And that became really, really frustrating for me. That's when I decided to switch to Ruby on Rails development. Somehow went through PHP, but we won't talk about that. Actually, now you've mentioned it, there is a a chap called Joshua Stein. Has he's a he's an OpenBSD user, and uh, of course OpenBSD of uh, OpenSSH fame plus uh, other uh, OpenSSH. Uh, no, I just said OpenSSH, didn't I? OpenSSH and uh, LibreSSL fame. Um, so one of the he's a OpenBSD user. He was switching from I'm presuming yes, he was switching from a Mac to OpenBSD. He was highly dependent on one password, and he switched to Bitwarden. However. He didn't fancy unpicking all the .NET dependencies and blah de blah de blah. So he went and, as far as I recall, he re-implemented the back end in Ruby. <laughs> is that available? <laughs> so open source. It is. It is. Um, you can do that. And so uh, he wrote a. This is. This may make more sense to you than me, Chris. Uh, he wrote a Sinatra server that implements all the yep. API calls needed by the Firefox extension for Bitwarden, and basically just. Uh, created his own backend and and used all the Bitwarden front-end stuff. He just sort of mocked all the all the API calls. So for your uh, benefit there, Sinatra is a very lightweight Ruby framework. Okay. It's not Rails. In that, that scenario is a great use for Sinatra. The criticism of Sinatra normally is that if you, if you build a full application with it, mm. you find very quickly at the end of it, you've just built yourself another version of Rails <laughs> because you've You've brought something in to do like view templates. You've brought something in to do user authentication. Like, like, like you, you have to bring most of it in anyway. Yes. For most web apps. But for doing an API, it's really good. The Rails is catching up on that as well. Oh, cool. So I have a, 
an opinion. I, I, I haven't really talked about this much, and I, I suppose it's not. I suppose it's more of a prediction. Sure. And that's that password managers will, in ten, twenty years' time, be thought of the way antivirus is now. This kind of maybe not outdated concept, mm. but th- there's a, there's a there's a trade off with them. And at the moment, that trade off makes a lot of sense. And antivirus has certainly, like the the ecosystem around antivirus, has certainly gotten to a point where you normally want to get your endpoint security or your antivirus off your operating system vendor mm-hmm. because people having root access to your machines which your <laughs> operating system does have mm-hmm. it is a risk yes so uh, the, the smaller the number of vendors you can have with root access to the machine the better and it was that information knowledge and, and conversations around that that made me switch to uh, windows defender for my home computer and the rest of the family and, and i think fundamentally password managers have the same problem they are trading a little bit of risk your your password is stored somewhere else on someone else's server you're yep. a, a big high profile target if someone got into LastPass, that would be <laughs> news everywhere and, and and for that you're gaining a bunch of convenience and the ability to set stronger passwords and at the moment that makes sense because a lot of websites don't have good secure options like it's awkward to use long passwords or the if you if you reuse passwords then that will probably get leaked somewhere and someone will be able to use it to get into another one of your accounts. But I think there's enough coming down the line in terms of especially browser-based biometrics and and the browsers having this sort of functionality built in, Mm. like being able to authenticate and the browser says, yes, this user has correctly authenticated. And that will get ported to Android. It already kind of is on Android and iOS. And as that starts to happen, I think you're going to see a reduction in the need for password managers. I think what will come first is that Sites will stop even offering their own authentication mechanisms. You'll authenticate through your operating systems. So that's really interesting. I, at work, and actually at numerous places I've worked, first day I get a a Windows laptop and told that the company browser is Internet Explorer. And for a few set applications that I've never used in any other company before or since, that application you have to use in Internet Explorer. And you try... Firefox and you try Chrome and it does not work. I mean, it it might render, but <laughs> you're not going to get far in it. But quite often, I will I will use Firefox and see how far I get with things because Internet Explorer is tied to Windows and because Windows is tied to Active Directory. When I log into my current company's IT portal, it automatically just logs me in. I get I get straight through. Is that is that SharePoint? It's not. No, it's ServiceNow. Okay. And before that, it was something called Rainbow. But if I log into the same portal using Firefox all of a sudden I lose that integration and I have to log in manually using a, a username and password. In sort of Microsoft environments, because I'm not seeing it, I, I don't know about it elsewhere. In Microsoft environments, we're already seeing exactly what you're kind of describing. And all it needs is for that to become slightly more generic, an open standard to be created around it and for people yeah. to, to actually start using it. I think the sort of closest representation of what I imagine in being sort of normal in the future is, I mean, even my bank application will let me log in on my phone via my fingerprint yeah same as mine yes and, and you it loads up you scan your fingerprint and you're in LastPass lets me do it as well that's the authentication sort of being pushed off to the operating side and it's very convenient for me i have to have to worry about it i believe that windows at some point i can never remember when this is supposed to be coming out is getting android phone based authentication so you authenticate on the android phone and it tells the windows pc okay that you are authenticated. I know there's a authentication API coming down for web browsers. This is all great. And I'm a Mac user, uh, generally, at home. And I'm an iPhone user. Love all the integration and everything. 
Uh, as I was saying earlier, I love the fact that I just have to hit a password field in any application on my iPhone and my iPhone knows it's a password field and that I might have a password in my password manager. What I hate is that that is an Apple private framework, API, whatever it is. You don't get the same integrations if I switch to a Linux or a FreeBSD yeah. or a, and actually what I think that we need in order to, to fully realize this is to have something that doesn't depend on Apple or Microsoft or Google putting something that bakes too deeply into their ecosystems. Yeah, it's going to depend on the ecosystem. Apple, obviously, is going to be more difficult. But from what I understand, Firefox will be able to implement an authentication service that might even uh, operate with their own user system. So your Mozilla account would be okay. your sign-in. But then in terms of biometrics, you have to go through the operating system for that. So the browser will talk to the operating system and whatever operating system requirements will then be fulfilled sort of through that interface. Unfortunately, we can't get away from the dominance of, of the operating systems. They're this frustrating sort of uh, grip on everything you do. I think that what you've just described to me sounds exactly like DRM, actually, that you'll have some sort of trust in Windows, some sort of trust in, in Mac OS or Android or iOS. This feature that could be quite core to how we use the web is linked to some proprietary trust that we put in these proprietary systems. That that would be a shame if that that's the way it turns out. I mean, I don't I don't really want that world to exist, but um, unfortunately, it already does. Mm. Your your Intel CPU has parts of it that you can't access. Yes, certain amount. Well, for for me at least, and and this is a personal decision where I get to the point of you know, I'd rather live in in Star Trek than. Because I know that's a lot of the reason we want the IoT stuff and you know the 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 fancy computer technology, mm. and I'd, I'd rather be there with the problems than not. And that's yeah, that's not a choice that anyone can make for anyone else. And I I feel very strongly that the that that, that privacy should be available for those that want it. Yeah. If if you don't, care, I mean, I, I wish the world worked in a way where I could like, I could use Facebook for free, or. Uh, what is the average value of Facebook user? I think it's like $20. Someone worked it out. Oh, really? Yeah, $20 a year or something. So like, I, I wish Facebook would let me just pay $20 and then I get removed from all of the, the stats because then you can pick and choose. Sure. The problem is that the value is from the network, not the individuals. So by doing that... You devalue the network. Can you imagine, though, if they were stupid enough to set something like that up? Because you would pay, let's say, £20, $20 did you say? Yeah, something like that. So I, I don't let's know. say twenty dollars. So let's say, um, let's say that that right now you can pay twenty dollars and you get removed from uh, from the, the the public network, sort of. Well, no, you, you say yeah, you, you gain access to all the features of Facebook, but you're no longer in any of the marketing or any of the applications. You get like a an ad ad free experience. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful? So you pay your twenty dollars, and so that's it. You, we've, we're, we're in January, so let's say that it runs until the end of two thousand nineteen. And a whole bunch of other users do exactly the same thing. Because it's tied to your value, to, to, to the value of this individual, because you've devalued the network by coming out, next year's subscription is less. <laughs> so more people sign up. So the year after that, yeah. it's even less. <laughs> I mean, I, I also, if you want me to make more predictions that are clearly going to be wrong, <laughs> I, think, I think Facebook is going to disappear. Oh, uh, no, come on. Uh, you said unrealistic. Of course Facebook's going to disappear. <laughs> when the sun expands and... <laughs> I, this kind of... This sort of segues into to the other topic we want to talk about, which was Facebook merging WhatsApp and uh, Messenger and Instagram Messenger. I think instant messaging has been around for almost all of my life. Certainly 
all the time I've been on the internet. I think that it probably can be traced back to like the 80s. So, so yeah, definitely. And to, to be honest, all of my adult life, I've always been connected to an instant messaging service somewhere. Eight, 12 hours a day. If you, It seems silly now, but if you went back to you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, and told people then that within six years, MSN Messenger was going to be dead. Well, that would have been crazy. Yeah. And, and here we are. It's gone. I think it might actually still... I think you can still sign into it. No, no. I can't remember. In the last two or three years, it actually got shut down. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I remember... <laughs> so this is sad. This is... This is I always think about things like this and never, I always think about it like an hour before or an hour after and then never actually get around to doing it. I was going to log on and be booted off. So I don't, I remember that it happened. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's nice. Okay. I like it. Yeah. I, I, I do kind of miss MSN, but what, WhatsApp's more or less replaced it for me. And I, I just think these things have like a natural growth cycle. Something else will come along. They're, they're so cheap to make. Mm. And I, I don't, I really don't mean to take away from the accomplishments of the engineers on them because WhatsApp is a, like the engineering behind it is amazing. Did, I don't know if you followed it when they were starting up before, before they sold to Facebook. They ran on a handful of servers. They had 40 employees and a billion users. So just as an aside, they were FreeBSD servers. They, oh, well, they were. <laughs> they were. Okay, that's cool. And, and they used... Um, XMPP running with oh, what's the language? Didn't wasn't it like Erlang or something like that? So yeah, WhatsApp's uh, Erlang. That engineering is glorious. When we used to be able to pay for WhatsApp, I, I'd pay for it not just for myself, but but for my friends because the engineering was great, the user experience was great. It was so simple. Yeah, and I thought that was that was worth paying for. I wa- I wanted to be there. And they sold to Facebook, and I was quite disappointed. I, I I don't think Facebook's gonna be around forever. I don't think WhatsApp's gonna be around forever. I think the merging of them probably makes them stronger like they might stay around a bit longer as a result so i think that with that um whatsapp is an interesting one if i said to the average person on the street what is whatsapp they could probably answer me with that question if i asked them what is facebook they can more than definitely answer that question if i said who owns whatsapp they probably wouldn't know that it was facebook now i think what that gives whatsapp and and therefore gives facebook is if Facebook ever needed to, they could spin off WhatsApp as a complete separate entity, sell it off to another company um, to be run as another service. This would kind of suggest that that would be more difficult once they've merged them. From what I was reading, they plan to allow cross-network communication. So you'll be able to talk to your Facebook Messenger friends from WhatsApp. And uh, Instagram as well, I believe. Yeah, and Instagram. Have you ever used Telegram? I, I have. I'm very, I, I, I sometimes still do. Okay. Very nervous about Telegram because I believe it's owned by a Russian company. Ooh. Um, and doesn't necessarily encrypt all of its data. According to Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, Telegram was launched in 2013 by brothers Nikolai and Pavel Durov. They're previously, the pair founded the Russian social network VK. Uh, yes. Um, it looks like, if not in Russia still, then certainly by Russians. And they, they also, I believe, when they first launched, rolled their own encryption? Yes. That's that's not great. Way, way, way back when, um, when I started using WhatsApp, I thought, very much like you, that it was great. Then Telegram came along, and it had encryption. And I thought that that would be better, because I figured that some encryption was better than no encryption. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I'm right or not on that uh, still to this day, but it, that seemed to make sense to me back in, uh, I guess, maybe around about 2000 and... 12-ish, 13-ish. 
However, and, and it was not long after that that Facebook bought WhatsApp and I thought, well, this is definitely the end. And then WhatsApp got the signal protocol and got end-to-end -end encryption and, and all the good things. Yeah, so you can verify user context, you get perfect forward secrecy. Absolutely. And, and yeah, end-to-end -end encryption so that even WhatsApp can't read your messages. Precisely. As it currently stands, we think. Yes. The interesting thing about the news that Facebook is going to merge the three chat apps is I've seen a lot of users crying that this is the end of their privacy and that we should all migrate to Telegram. You shouldn't migrate to Telegram. Just that they don't want the integration and that therefore you should go to Telegram. You should not migrate to Telegram. If you're going to migrate to anywhere, migrate to Signal. Uh, in fact, I'd like to plug a resource here from the EFF, mm -hmm. which is uh, ssd.eff.org. It's surveillance self-defense, and it will give you there's a bunch of guides on how to set up various different uh, chat protocols and what you should be thinking about uh, in terms of this personal security if there are parts of your life you want to remain private. Uh, I, I use Signal, and I use Signal to communicate about things that I do want to remain private. And, and I think having that is a great thing. Yeah. I wouldn't personally even trust WhatsApp with that. The the difficulty with WhatsApp is from from the outside. Have you, have you been kind of following the story with the uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. The the owners of WhatsApp. Ah, uh, I should know his name. I haven't been following the story. No, they they sold out for a lot of money. Was it like two billion dollars or something ridiculous? It was an awful lot of money. Yes, I'm not going to blame them. I think that amount of money after do, after doing all that work, I can I can totally understand being tempted. Right. Sure, yeah. He was supposed to serve in the company for a long period of time afterwards as well, so he felt he would have significant influence within the company. And it shows that implementing the Signal protocol meant that they did. And to be honest, that maybe even slowed down what Facebook would have done with the data otherwise. Absolutely, yes. Publicly, as far as we know then, he left the board early. Uh, in the process, sacrificed quite a chunk of the money he would have otherwise earned from Facebook. And also told everyone that Facebook was going to be mining the data from whatsapp as soon as it could and i suspect that this sort of integration of everything mm. is going to lead to that we will we will end up in reality with everything using a single protocol yes just with different ways of identifying it a different skin on the uh messaging ui like you can make the ui whatever you want have a have the same api behind it all and then facebook will through that be able to look at the data as required and I think they'll, the way they'll do it will still allow them to claim it's encrypted. Whether or not we'll be able to show it's end-to-end -end encrypted or not, um, I don't know. So I guess the other thing that Facebook undoubtedly have pressure under is that Facebook and therefore WhatsApp are American-based entities and will have, I can't recall any stories um, from the past, but certainly Apple have been criticised by the FBI, by American government for withholding information that they can't give because it's end-to-end -end encrypted. If Facebook can mine the data from WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger, then obviously that's a great business resource for them. But they can also then get governments around the world off their back by saying, look, you know, don't tell anyone, but we can give you the information that you want. And that's got to, that's got to put them in great stead with governments when you compare that to, say, the likes of Apple that, that won't do that. Yeah, it's... It's it's really difficult there. I think that's kind of happening in a bunch of different areas, and and, and the interesting bit I've seen from that is like it's it's a sort of a situation where you don't feel as if the companies are, are that unified. Like we've seen Google in some hands cooperating with the government. I mean they're forced to, but how willing that is up to is maybe up for debate. And at the same time, we've seen them encrypting their uh, backend links so that even if someone does plug some hardware in somewhere along the line they they no longer assume it's secure 
but this isn't meant to sound too cynical but i think there's only a limited amount you can do yeah you've got to do sort of proper threat analysis and work out what is the correct level of security for you what do you think you need to keep private what do you not care if people know about maybe you're happy with everyone knowing about it yes and i i think to be honest so if i just uh open up uh whatsapp and i've I've got my phone on uh, airplane mode at the moment, so it doesn't go off while we're, we, we are recording. If I look at my most recent uh, messages, basically, so here in the UK, we've had some snow today, and it's mainly people going, snow, do I really care if somebody intercepts messages about me telling other people it's snowing when you can log on to the news and it'll tell you that it's snowing? <laughs> the the worst that I can probably get from some of my chats is an is a inappropriate or, or bad joke, like... I dare say that with enough data that a profile can be made up of me and that may I, I may later regret that that profile has been made up, not because it's nasty, but because it somehow exploits an element of my personality or, or being or background or whatever. But no, broadly, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. The, the little things that I discuss, really, they don't need to be encrypted. But there are there are people who who, who do have significant things that they absolutely secret. Absolutely. And for legitimate reasons, there there are people who are in a situation where if someone found out about their sexuality, they could lose their house, their job. That sucks. Like, the world shouldn't be like that. But I think we need to acknowledge that and that these tools can help. They're not going to solve the problem. I think that it's important, as always, to remember that encrypted communication can help the bad guys. It can it can allow them to go under surveillance and communicate and organize. However, it also gives us freedom because it allows people that are marginalized to speak with each other. And it also allows whistleblowers to contact the press and for us, general public, to understand the truth. If we didn't have encrypted communications, a whole lot of good things wouldn't be possible. Online banking relies on it and you, you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle like... I know the, the UK government is trying to do this, like banning <laughs> encryption and all, all sorts of ideas. And it, it's not possible. Like the, It's maths. It's, 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 it's being created. And this is the world we live in now. And we, we have to work with that. I'm glad that we live in a, a universe where encryption can be a thing, where I can have private long distance communication and be re- relatively certain that, that no one else is reading that. Yeah. Now I'd like to introduce Michael Collins. Hello, I'm Mike Collins. Um, I'm a, uh, a learning designer uh, working out of the Open University. Can you brief- briefly summarise for us what your job entails? So uh, we work as part of uh, what's currently called LTI, which is Learning and Teaching Innovations, to support the faculties in producing their module material. Uh, Open University is obviously a distance learning university, and we help kind of form a bridge between the production side and the authoring and design and development side of modules so that goes across quite a wide spread of stuff but most of it's digital so we'll advise on tool use technique research structure that sort of thing we'll also provide a sort of uh, after the design phase post launch kind of analytics support uh, that sort of thing do you do any direct content creation yourself so we do i so i used to be involved in production i used to work in development and production team um, where it was actually sort of producing the content itself, or at least you know, being being part of the production process. We also help them kind of like, you know, with asset creation and stuff, although there are a lot of specialist teams within the university who've got sort of very specific sp- uh, spheres of interest. We've got video and audio team, graphics teams, interactive media teams. 
You mentioned that you provide analytics back to the teams. What sort of analytics do you collect? Okay, so we have a system called SAS VA. I couldn't tell you what it stands for, although I'm pretty sure the VA element is visual analytics. And what that does is it works as an aggregate for the tens of thousands of different uh, databases that we've got dotted around. So we collect data on just about anything, I mean, obviously all within kind of uh, data protection rules and GDPR and this, that and the other, on, you know, demographics of students coming in, um, you know, attainment, that sort of thing. So how they're doing with submissions, um, assessments. Uh, We also collect it off of our VLE system. So we've got very, very basic analytics available on uh, on our VLE. Uh, and by basic, I mean sort of, you know, think early 2000s kind of Google Analytics basic, if not late <laughs> 90s. So what sort of questions are you answering from those analytics? Yeah, just come off the back of a load of data support um, meetings. And what we are doing is at the early stage is working out the very, very basic questions. So there's a load of KPIs that modules have to hit on, for example, retention of students. So, you know, actually keeping students in the course. Um, as well as as with assessments, uh, they want to hit submission targets. They want to hit, um, you know, there'll be target grades for students that they'll be trying to trying to hit. So there's very very basic ones initially, and also kind of like you know student numbers, this that and the other. It's all very very basic, but it's starting off looking throughout the life of the module to work out if there's any problems with it. So for example, we'd be looking at VLE engagement overall. So going for example, uh, we've got students who are they tend to disconnect a bit around the Christmas period. And you'll see VLE engagement on a sort of a primarily digital module drop from 85% in a given week of students visiting the VLE all the way down to sub 30. Wow. And then slowly, yeah, exactly. And then slowly climb back up again after that, even though kind of the actual break in the calendar is only one or two weeks, it will be a much slower climb back out of that, back up to a kind of full whack, normally sort of led by assessment, I should point out. So there's uh, normally there's an assessment before people start coming back onto the VLE to get back into it. Yeah, so it's a, this is one of the things that we so one of the things that we try and do as part of data support is to provide. So one of the things we call it analytics for action. So we try and provide solutions. I say solutions. We try and sort of provide guidance on what you can do when the analytics say you've got, if not a problem, then an opportunity for improvement. So say, for example, you've got um, a module which is experiencing a drop in students' engagement on the VLE around a certain period. Now, there could be a whole load of reasons for that. Um, It could be, for example, that you've got a load of activities which are delivered online, but then the actual work for them is offline. So people are going offline to do the work or they're going sort of by offline, you know, to other platforms. Maybe they've got Facebook groups where they're doing communicative activities, that sort of thing. It could also be the fact that maybe the material isn't quite as engaging in that point or maybe you've just not signposted how students should be kind of navigating through the module at that point you could for example have had an absolute monster of a chunk of learning way you know a couple of weeks back which students are still trying to chew their way through in order to get the content you've currently got or maybe there's nothing really on there that's making them think that it's directly impacting assessment and students tend to be quite uh, assessment focused so they'll be going you know it's not going to be uh, it's not going to basically contribute to them passing the course if they can bypass it and it's clear to them they can, then they will, because why wouldn't you? So it's things like that and kind of uh, identifying places where, okay, there's this fallow period here. And historically, you know, if you're looking over the last three or four years worth of presentations, this is a, this is a dip in engagement point. Why don't you do something here at like you know, week X or week Y 
which involved this, this, or this. For example, you could have a, a tutor intervention, so you could sort of get the tutors to contact the students either through the tutor groups or maybe any other informal groups they've got going to kind of you know, chivvy them into it. Uh, you could throw a bit of extra content in there just to kind of spice it up a little bit, see if you can entice people in. Some modules do something called active presentation, where they've got um, active Facebook and Twitter presences, so they can kind of chivvy people with that. Or alternatively, if it is because you've got a particularly meaty lump, which is sort of, you know, consuming a lot of people's time going into it, then you look back at that and you see if you can address that problem. Cool. You mentioned the VLE a lot. I'm assuming as it's an online course, you use a VLE. Sorry, I should clarify for our audience. That's a virtual learning environment. You use a VLE an awful lot to develop the materials for the courses? Uh, well, not for to develop, no. So the so Open University... Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely to deliver. So the Open University is a distance learning institution. Started using Moodle back then, and it was kind of, it's been a very gradual shift um, over the last X years to get everything... Well, not everything, but to get the vast majority of module content delivered online. And that's been quite a tough shift because the university historically, you know, was very famous for delivering lots of books, videotapes, DVDs, CDs, that sort of thing. I remember watching it as a child in the in the mornings. For uh, anyone outside of the UK, the Open University would broadcast during the night, and you were supposed to record it and then watch it then the next day or, or over the next few weeks. And uh, that's not how it's done anymore. No, but it is absolutely fabulous. We've got um, <laughs> access to the uh, the archive. Oh right, and it's nice. the fiftieth. It was the it's the Open University's fiftieth anniversary this year, which is great fun. And we've been amusing ourselves by going through some of the old television programs <laughs> we used to put out. <laughs> oh my god they would slay you we had some fantastic ones we had you know like the stereotypical OU professor from the telly back in the day of like mm. yep. sandals cable knit jumper big beard mad eyes so one of them was that and it was the guy basically talking about a sort of a pre-internet thing about how you'd have this device you could plug into your telly and you'd plug it into your phone line <laughs> and your lecturer would be able to draw at one end of the phone line and like the drawing would come out of <laughs> the other end and how this was going to revolutionize education. That's like, and, and this box is only 200 pounds and we'll soon have this in a, every single home in the UK. And kind of all this uh, cool new technological innovation they were super excited about. I think none of which probably survived the year, let alone uh, survives today. So that was going to be my question, that not having used a VLE, given what you just said, it's not a case of the uh, the lecturer draws on one end and it magically appears on your computer screen. Um, <laughs> what exactly, what sort of activities happen inside a, a VLE? Okay, so it's basically a glorified website. You could do the same with any sort of website, and there are some distance learning institutions and places that do training, which do a very good job of delivering sort of distance education through non-VLEs. Okay. You know, the likes of WordPress or custom websites. The difference with a VLE is it tends to be built around the specific educational quirks and needs. So, um, for example, Moodle by default has a load of assessment stuff built into it, things like student and cohort management, a load of permission sets for sort of students, tutors, dundee, dundee, dundee. Um, and the basic version of it is designed to be quite simple to a spin up as in to you know deploy but also to create content in it you know you can whack into the WYSIWYG editor quite simply and just start writing stuff and you can put it in front of students with moderate to little real trouble and I, I guess the sort of terms used within it then, because it's aimed at education, are educational type terms rather than having sort of manager and a user, you'd have a, a lecturer and a student that it would use that, that sort of terminology. So it's familiar to those in, in, the, in the industry. 
Yeah, I mean, so I know our version. So the Open University runs its own version of Moodle. Uh, I think it's OU Moodle. So we've got ours pretty heavily customized with things like roles. So we've got something like 20 different roles in it. I think I'm technically a workspace updater or something. But yeah, you've got your students and tutor roles and all of that. I'm pretty sure the kind of general role management is uh, is a native part of Moodle. So, so you say it's an open source project. It's still under development even today. Moodle's sort of constantly getting changed. There's actually a big thing at the moment, or should I say a small thing, because it's on your mobile phone. Moodle is, has a mobile app now, which is pretty neat. Um, and there's this interesting quirk where because the university heavily customizes Moodle to kind of fit its own needs, we used to do that because Moodle was, you know, a little bit basic and a little bit old fashioned. So it was not just to kind of like match our systems and things, but also to, you know, make it do stuff that we wanted it to do. But because we're such a lab sort of a, a beast, such we've got so much kind of institutional momentum behind our version of it, Moodle's overtaken us. So core Moodle, the basic version has overtaken us. And on top of everything else, they've got a mobile app now. Oh, so it's still developed independently from the university. The university hasn't dominated development completely. No, 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 not at all. So yeah, we we contribute stuff to the the Moodle project. So for example, we've developed a load of activities, different interactions. We've contributed a lot to ICMAs, which are interactive computer marked assignments, and different components within that. But the project itself is still, I'll be honest with you, I kind of got this in my head, just a collection of sort of net wizards who gather (laughs) at sort of Elrond style council periodically and go, aha, the council of Moodle, we have met. So how does the university manage the development? Is it an internal team at the university working on this and pushing contributions up? Or is it external companies that are coming in and doing paid work for the university? The So development at a large scale is managed by both IT and a learning systems team. It's also fed into by a student experience team who do a lot of the UX work. But a lot of the sort of the grant work development is done as sort of, you know, for at a, I guess, platform level is done offshore, or at least was done offshore. A lot of the kind of the fun little gribbly bits that we contribute to the wider project, I believe, are done by not so much one man bands, but smaller project teams. How does the university collect feedback for the VLA and feed that back into the Moodle project? There's been a couple of big projects around um, collecting feedback. Obviously, we've always had a feedback button on the VLA which just kind of throws off your generic kind of free uh, free text response box, which, you know, makes its way to the appropriate team for them to do with as they wish. But then there was a big, primarily UX-focused redesign where they brought in a load of students on site for testing. They did a load of remote testing. They had consultants in. It's, yeah, it was a really, really big, multifaceted kind of combination IT and learning system projects. And it actually led to, I believe, the creation of the student experience team. And that team's still going today. So there's now a kind of, an ongoing commitment to developing the UX, progressing the UX of the VLE. Started at a visual kind of platform level, and sort of a load of quality of life usability things. And it's now been making its way down to component levels. So, you know, individual components are getting kind of picked over. Is there stuff that can be improved with them? And now individual tools and resources as well. So that student experience team, that's a formal team staffed by employees that's trying to improve the experience for students. Yeah, so they're aligned with the learning systems team who look after the learning systems uh, from kind of a Tel and LTI perspective and help out with development on those. Obviously, you know, IT kind of exist underneath and alongside all of this because they've got uh, they control the developers and the relationships and this, that and the other. Um, but yeah, the student experience team are a primarily UX focused team. Is there anything else you'd like to say, Mike? Just that I think the really interesting thing about VLEs is that people 
one basically as soon as people started adopting them they were like oh this is the greatest greatest thing ever because we're doing it on websites it's going to make it you know quicker and easier and cheaper and more scalable to teach people and that is absolutely not the case but the reality is that the vles are still just the delivery method and you still need the actual teachers there and it turns out you can't get by with less teachers just because you're delivering at scale even though the content itself is being pushed out at a massive level nice and easy to just slap up a vle whiz it up content out bam you still need an absolute army of associate lecturers to actually do the teaching for it. So when you say do the teaching, do you mean supporting that teaching when there's questions that come back in? Or do you mean just writing the course material? Writing the course material is done by module teams within the university. With the actual kind of active teaching element, it turns out that just slapping something on a website and then putting four assessments in the middle of it doesn't, for a great learning experience, make. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and surprisingly, when when not great learning experience had, a student succeedeth not. Students go go home bored, students no longer attend, fees no pay, very sad. Yeah, not, not succeed in degree, which is kind of the whole uh, the whole point of the affair. So you still need all the teachers and associate lecturers. And there's got to be a point at some stage where you sit there and go, have you, by swapping your conventional teaching methods for VLE-delivered learning, basically tried to save money and instead shot yourself in the foot? That We had a huge backlash because there was a miscommunication which basically made people think the university was getting rid of books. <laughs> so so we, we weren't going to deliver books anymore. That was going to... Everybody was like, oh, up in arms. No, we, the Open University's always done books and we go to the Open University for books. And it's not the case, you know, they're trying to do digitally, they're trying to improve how the digital content is delivered, better suit what they want to teach to the medium. And sometimes the web is good for that, sometimes a book is good for that, sometimes a face-to-face tutorial or an online tutorial with your tutor is the best way to do that. So yeah, it's kind of this interesting seesaw between this kind of wholesale adoption of VLEs, and I know there's a, it's a definite kind of growing field elsewhere in higher and distance education but the fact that at the end of the day it's not always going to be the best way to teach people do you feel though that we can still because obviously education is a very expensive thing to deliver to people do you feel that there's some potential for us to sort of uh, scale that even even a little bit even if you could oh absolutely so and and avili is part of that yeah i'd say so yeah absolutely They're, they're very i mean if you compare it to producing storing and shipping books VLEs are a very efficient way to deliver material. They allow you to deliver material that would otherwise be very difficult to deliver, like um, interactive sort of you know, interactive activities. A lot of media-rich courses would be very difficult to deliver on a pallet load of DVDs. And they also allow you to facilitate things like distance meetings with tutors. We, for example, use Adobe Rooms. Have you ever used that? No, I've not. So Adobe Rooms, which lets you have kind of you know virtual classrooms where you've got it's a bit like Discord actually where you can have multiple people in chat and voice channels, but it's also got a lot of really neat kind of meeting-slash-education-focused functions with, you know, shared whiteboards, different sets of permissions, breakout rooms, that sort of thing. So you can have more of that interactive experience with other students and the tutor. Yeah, and that's really, really important. It's one of the things that has been... There's there's a lot of research that basically says students who engage in collaboration do better. They don't like it. Students don't like collaborating, but they do better. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's everything. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to our first episode. You can follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode. 